Good morning. I hope you guys are doing well. Welcome. Um, let, let me pray for us uh, before, so we can get into the Word and hear uh, from Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. God, I am just amazed that, that you love us, even though we're rebellious that you are mindful of us and you care about us even though we are dust. We are weak, we are dirt. And yet you care about us and you cherish us and you are personal with us and you make yourself known to us. And even in our rebellion against you, you do not destroy us, but you discipline us as you bring us back. And Lord, I don't understand why, but we're just grateful. We're so grateful that you've sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. We're so grateful that not only have you called us to yourself, but you've also called us to one another, to live in community with one another as the people of God, and so that in our sins and in our struggles, not only can we draw closer to you, but we can also draw closer to your people where we can be encouraged and be faithfully pointed to you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that, and may we never take it for granted. May we constantly cherish the gathering of your people. May we constantly cherish that when your people scatter, that we gather in one another's homes and we open up your word and we point one another to you. And so, Lord, I, I pray that as we open up your word, can, can you speak to us? Can you make yourself known to us? Can you help us to understand? Can you stir in our hearts, Lord? Lord, you know each and every one in this room. You know the craving of our souls. You know that some of us are thirsty and we're trying to fill it with other things. And yet the only thing that will satisfy is you, Lord. And I pray, can that truth just really hit us hard? Can you help us recognize our thirst and see it as a gift from you and that you are the only one that satisfies that thirst? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 7, verse 25. And so in the Gospel of John, uh, John has been showing us that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. And the way he's been showing us this is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and also how Jesus received glory from the Father. And his ultimate purpose of showing us all these things is to invite us in to believe in Jesus so that we may have life in his name. Now, now Jesus' ministry was leaving those he encountered curious about who he was and exactly what he came to do. And, and so the, the question in chapter 7 that's kind of been swirling around is, who is Jesus? And so John showed us, he showed us that Jesus is the one who belongs to God. He doesn't belong to the world, he belongs to God. And because he belongs to, the, to God, the world hates him. And the world also hates him because he testifies that what the world does is evil. And that his teaching is not his own teaching, but rather his teaching is God's teaching because he was sent by God. His teaching is God's teaching because he's not in it for himself. He's in it to reveal the glory of God and to show, uh, to, to show his commitment to God's will. Now, in chapter 7, the questions of chapter 7 about Jesus kind of rings throughout chapter 7 as people are trying to figure out who is Jesus as they are amazed at Jesus. For some, they were amazed at the miracles that Jesus performed. Others were amazed at the fact that Jesus would actually tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk and carry his mat on the Sabbath in front of the religious authorities. Some were amazed at the teachings of Jesus, that he was teaching with so much authority, and they're wondering, where in the world did he get his formal training? 
He's not quoting other rabbis. He's just speaking and says, and say, I tell you. Some were amazed that he would continue on in his ministry, preaching with such authority. And yet the religious authorities have not arrested him yet. And so what we see is we see questions just swirling around Jesus. And then at the, e- at the end of the feast, Jesus stands up and makes this passionate plea before all the people leave to go to their hometowns. And, and what we're going to see in our text is the response of the people are divided, even among the religious authorities. So, so let's look at what happens in the rest of chapter 7. Look at some of the claims that Jesus makes as John is continually to show us who is Jesus. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? But we know where, he's, where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. As we continue to read, notice all the questions that are being asked. Verse, verse 28. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me, and you know where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, When the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. So, so let's stop here and just talk about this. So the people questioned Jesus, doubted Jesus, even accused Jesus. And notice the common question that people are asking about Jesus. Could this be the Messiah? Would the Messiah uh, perform more signs than Jesus has done? You see, the people had a difficult time with Jesus because Jesus is not what they nor the religious authorities expected in their Messiah. You see, the people were looking for someone to come and power and authority to overthrow the government authorities that were pressing them. The religious authorities were expecting the Messiah to come with power and authority to elevate the religious system, to elevate the temple, and to elevate the glory of Israel once again. But Jesus doesn't come in power and authority, but rather Jesus comes in humility. But he doesn't come to overthrow the government authorities that are oppressing them. He doesn't come to elevate their religious system. He doesn't come to elevate the law or to elevate the temple. No. He comes to fulfill the law. He comes to fulfill the temple. And he comes not to restore the glory of Israel because he is the glory of Israel. And so those looking on, including his brother, saw nothing more than a carpenter's son. Somebody who is from the bad side of the country, from Galilee, because what good comes out of Galilee? Yet John knows, and we know, the readers of the Gospel of John know that Jesus was so much more. And so all these questions swirling around, everybody trying to figure out who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? In the midst of all of these questions, Jesus... Jesus stands up and he makes claims about them and then claims about himself in verse 28 and 29. So let's look at verse 28, the claims he makes about these people. It says this, verse 28, As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me and you know where I'm from, yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, you think you know me, you think you know where I am from, but you really don't. I did not come on my own, 
but I was sent by God who is real. In other words, Jesus is not trying to prove the existence of God, but rather he is telling us where he came from. He came from God who is real. But here's the stinger here. Here's the claim he makes about them. He looks to the crowd and he says, but you don't know him. In other words, you do not know God. Now, now, for some of us, not maybe understanding the context, we're thinking, okay, that's probably not the nicest thing to say, but, but what's the big deal about it? Now, 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 think about the big deal about, about Jesus telling the crowd that you do not know God. The Jews prided themselves on knowing God because God revealed himself to them through the law. In other words, because they have received the law, And through the law, God makes himself known to his people by them knowing the law, obeying the law, they know God. And by Jesus telling them, you don't know God, basically what he's telling them is you have no understanding of the law because you do not know God and thus you are a law breaker. And the reason why Jesus says you do not know him is because if they knew God and if they knew the law and understood the law, they would know that the law was pointing to Jesus and they would never have rejected Jesus. But because they did not understand the law, because they did not know God, they rejected Jesus. Look at the claims that Jesus makes about himself in verse 29. He says, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So in other words, if you're taking notes, uh, what we're learning today about Jesus, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us he knows God because he came from God and he was sent by God. He knows God, why? Because he came from God. He was sent by God. Now, now some of you are saying, well, you know, it's kind of redundant. So obviously, he was sent by God because he came from God, but not really, because what's Jesus claiming here? Think about this. Where, did the prophets come from God? No. They were on this earth, and what did God do? God revealed himself to the prophets, and then he sent the prophets to go speak his word. But Jesus didn't know God because God revealed himself like the prophets. Rather, Jesus knew God because he was with God, which means he was in the presence of God, someone, something a prophet could never do. In other words, he's claiming equality with God. I was with God. Because I know God, I was with him, and thus he sent me to you. And this is how we know the severity of the claims, because look at what they wanted to do uh, after the claims that Jesus made. Look at verse 30. Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So so more than likely, this wasn't um, an organized ceasing. This was a spontaneous grab your pitchfork and bat and whatever you grab, uh, let's get him, let's seize him because of the claims he's made about himself. And, And notice what the text says in verse 30. As they were trying to seize him, no one was able to touch him. In other words, how did Jesus escape? We have no idea. That's unclear. We don't know how he escaped. We don't know if he was some ninja and he just kind of like swirled through the crowd and and he fought them off. But the Bible tells us we don't know how he escaped. But we certainly do know why he escaped, why nobody could touch him. What, What does the Bible say? Because his hour had not yet come. Now, I want us to stop here and just just think about this because I think there's a truth there that can really encourage our hearts. 
I think the fact that as they were trying to seize Jesus, they couldn't because his hour had not yet come, which shows us like we can take comfort, we can rest and put our hope in the sovereignty of God. And what I mean by that is that God is in control, that his plan will be accomplished, his will will be done. You're like, how how do you see this from the text? Let me show you. Because the people tried to seize Jesus, and they couldn't even touch him. Why? Because they can't touch him without the permission of the Father. They were powerless to carry out their plans until the Father allowed it. In other words, what we're learning about God is that nothing happens without God ordaining it to happen. Well, like, think about this. And think about what that even means for us here. If these people could not touch Jesus because his hour had not yet come, in other words, God has not allowed them. He has forbidden them from touching Jesus because he has a plan. He has a purpose because he is in control of everything and his plan will be accomplished. His will will be done. That means that we can take comfort and hope and rest in the sovereignty of God, that God has a plan, that God has a purpose. His plan is going to be accomplished. His purpose is going to be executed. His will is going to be done. So even when we find ourselves in in a in a crazy world during a crazy restless time as Christians, we can rest in the sovereignty of God. Because God's in control. Like like think about this from this perspective. No one can touch you unless God allows them to touch you. Nothing can happen to you unless God allows it to happen to you. Now, I know as pastors, we're very afraid to say that God ordains everything, good and bad. Because then the question always comes up, so you want to tell me God allowed it? And I'm going to say yes, because the Lord is sovereign. And he is in control. And just because the Lord uses evil for his glory does not make him evil, but it makes him in control of evil because he is that big. And I know for some of you this truth is hard to understand, but just think about it from this perspective. Let's say you find yourself in a difficult season in suffering. Would you rather know that that suffering is by chance or by God? Now, now let's think about by chance. Let, let's say chance is neutral. It's neither good nor evil. It's just random. In other words, it doesn't care about you. It's just a random event. Would you rather want everything in life to happen just by chance, just randomly? Or would you rather know that this is from God, which the Bible tells us is who? He is a good God. He is kind. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger, and yet he rightfully punishes sin. And the Bible even tells us that everything works out for his glory and for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so when you find yourself in a season of waiting, when you look at chance, you're like, I guess I'm just waiting by chance. There's really no comfort. Because everything is just a random series of events, a cause and effect. But if you know that that waiting comes from God, and you know that God has a purpose for his glory and for our good, now we can rest in that waiting because somehow that waiting is for our good. The same with suffering. If we do not say suffering is from God, then we should be pitied because that means suffering is just a random cause of event in our lives that has no purpose. But if we can say that suffering is from God and that God is in control of it, that God has a purpose, we can rest in it knowing that somehow in our suffering, even though we don't enjoy it, it's for our good. He has a purpose in it. I can rest in it. 
And this is what we see in our texts. This is what I want to encourage you in our texts. It's like, let's put our comfort and our hope and our rest in the sovereignty of God that nothing happens in your life without God allowing it to happen. Let me just even use a stronger word, ordaining it to happen. Because this is what happened in the life of Jesus. Jesus' hour had not yet come. They could not touch him, even though they wanted to. And yeah, eventually, Jesus, his time will come. Evil men will arrest him. Evil men will beat him, and they will kill him. And even that arrest, and even that beating, and even that murder on a brutal cross wasn't some series of random events, cause and effect, but served a purpose, and that was to save us. Look at what Jesus says in verse 33. Notice, after the claims that, that Jesus made, the crowd wanted to seize him, the Pharisees wanted to arrest him, and yet Jesus is still talking. Verse 33 says, Jesus says, I'm only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go so we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. It's like even after the crowd tried to seize him, even after the temple guards were released to arrest him, John doesn't tell us the outcome, but instead he tells us what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing. At the same time that as Jesus is doing it, the guards are looking for an opportunity to arrest him. And so more than likely, Jesus hearing the the rumors from the officials to arrest him, Jesus speaks of his imminent departure in words that everybody could clearly understand. He says, I am only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. In other words, the second thing that, Jesus, that John shows us about who Jesus is, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. Now you're like, where did you get that from? Because the only thing I read was Jesus only going to be here for a short while and then he's going to go back to the one who sent him. So where did I get it from? What's the road back to glory with the Father? The cross. So when Jesus says, I'm only here for a short while before I return, What he's referring to is the cross. What he's referring to is that he came to die. He didn't come here to be here forever. He came with a purpose to sacrifice himself and to redeem a people for God. And the cross is the only means back to the Father. Death was not the end of Jesus, but rather death was the return to the glory he had with the Father before the world began. And once Jesus reached that point, no one, not even his faithful disciples, could join him. But the crowd, the religious authorities, did not understand it. Because they thought they knew who Jesus was. They thought they knew where Jesus came from. And if they knew all of these facts, certainly there is nowhere where Jesus will hide and they would not know about. Even if he goes to the outermost parts of the earth to be among the Jews, somehow they will be able to find him. And in their misunderstanding, like think about the irony here, okay? Think about what the people were saying. Is he going to, among the dispersed Jews, is he, in a sense, going to the ends of the earth to reach people? No. But yes. Because even though Jesus would go to the cross... He will be raised, and he will be, through his ascension, return, uh, to, return to, to the Father in glory... 
the proclamation of Jesus by his faithful disciples will spread throughout the ends of the earth. And then we kind of get to verse 37. The final scene of chapter 7 is kind of a striking one. It is the highlight one. Uh, uh, John is going to tell us it's the last day of the feast, which indicates uh, since the time that they wanted to seize Jesus, since the time they wanted to arrest Jesus, a day or two might have passed, but now they are at the end of this festivity and Jesus has still not been arrested. Look at verse 37. It says, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, on the last day of this festival, the festival of shelters or of booths or tabernacles, regardless of your translation, it's the same thing. The high priest would take the golden jug. It's like the closing ceremony. It is like the biggest ceremony of this festivity. It started off big, but it's ending really big. And so the high priest would take a golden jug. He would walk outside of the temple. He would gather water from the pool of Shalom. And as he would be walking in this procession back into the temple, the second the high priest would enter into the temple, the trumpets would blast, the choirs were singing, and then the people in unison will be shouting, give thanks to the Lord, and they would do it three times. And what this water ritual symbolized, and the reason why it took place is because as the high priest took the water back into the temple. It is a reminder of the people out of Exodus as they were wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, the land of God. The Lord faithfully provided water for them in their wandering. It also caused the people to praise the Lord for the harvest because of the rain that the Lord had provided. But it was also a time where they were looking forward. A time when the Messiah would come and he would provide the water of salvation. And we see this in Isaiah 12, 3. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And so during this festivity, during this procession, as the trumpets were blasting and the people were shouting and everybody was singing as they were thinking back in the past, present, and future, Jesus stands up and he cries out. Now, I don't know if he did it before the procession, during the procession, or after the procession. Either way, he interrupts the festivities. And look at what he shouts in verse 37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. In other words, what Jesus says in his pronouncement is that he is the fulfillment of this feast. That was anticipated. He is the water that Isaiah was inviting them to come and drink. And he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Now, the imagery of water, we, we see that throughout Scripture. Uh, it's an imagery that I think that Every person, regardless of your background, regardless of your cultural context, uh, the era that you were born in, I think all of us, in a sense, can relate to the imagery of water because water, in a sense, represents life. Without it, you cannot live. 
I think, unfortunately, in our, in our cultural context, we might not see the value of water and the need for water as much just because it's, it's so easily available. But in the Bible time, and, and even in the first century Jewish time, the, the necessity of water was so important as they lived in, in a desert period where they had to dig wells and water was not as readily available. It was limited in its source of water especially as the people were wandering through the wilderness. Back during the Exodus time, water was hard to come by. And what Jesus does, he uses this imagery, and he says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. In other words, what he is saying, I offer life. And so if you're taking notes, and we're going to talk about this claim of Jesus, the third thing that John shows us about Jesus, not only does Jesus know God because he's from God and he was sent by God, not only did Jesus come to die, but Jesus is the water that our parched souls crave. He is the water that our parched souls crave. Now, in Jesus using this imagery, of both water and thirst. What he's doing, he's offering something that is both necessary, offering something that is precious, and also in his offering there is a promise. Let's think about the, the necessary part. Um, thirst is probably one of the most important senses that we have. Because when you're thirsty... That means you are almost dehydrated and your body is telling you there is something missing. There is something necessary that I need. I need water. And not only is that true for our physical sense, but I also think there's a thirst metaphorically in our spiritual sense. Like when there is a craving, when there is a dissatisfaction or a restlessness, let's just call all of those things thirst. Our body, our spiritual body is telling us there is something missing. I need something in order to survive. And if you think about it from the physical sense, where does that sense of thirst come from? It comes from God. God created you, and he gave you the sense of hunger and thirst that tells and warns your body, uh-oh, I need something so that you don't just drop and just die. It's warning lights. And that's the same thing for the spiritual sense. Like if there's a craving in your heart, if there's a restlessness, if there's a thirst, your spiritual body is saying something is missing. And you know where that comes from? It comes from God. It is God being gracious to you saying there is something missing. There is something that is necessary that you need in order to live. And this imagery is not only necessary, but also precious. Think about what he offers. He offers water, and metaphorically, what he's really offering is himself. Like, he is the promised Messiah that they waited for. He is the living water that they craved for. And what he's doing, he's calling them to come and drink. He's calling them to look to him and believe in him. And this water is not something that they could earn. It's not something that they had to work for. But rather is a gift that is freely given. Like what's the invitation? He doesn't say come and buy. He says come and drink. This water is given to you. Myself is given to you. Come and look to me and believe in me. And this is what he's saying. But in this imagery, not only is he offering something that's necessary and precious, but there's also a promise. When you come and when you drink, it's not just a sip. It's not just a cup. It's not limited. Look, look, look at what he says, verse 38. 
the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Now for us, we're like, whoa, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean it's inside of us? Well, John clarifies it for us. He says, no, it's not inside of you, but what does it mean? He said this in verse 39. He said this about the Spirit. In other words, when you come and you look to Him and you believe in Him, when you realize you are thirsty and you drink from Him, it's not just a sip. It's not just a tiny little cup. It's not even just a five-gallon barrel. But rather, it is a stream of deep, abundant, flowing water. And that stream of deep, abundant, flowing water is the Spirit Himself that is promised to be given to you when you are in Jesus Christ. How awesome is it, this promise, this source and power of the Spirit that's given to us when we come and we believe in Jesus. It's almost this idea of when we are in Christ and we have the Spirit of Christ, we are now connected to the source of Christ. In other words, it's not just a, I'm drink, I'm satisfied, and then I just go on with my life but rather there's this continuous stream of water that continually fills me and satisfies me. This is what he is saying. And so as Jesus spoke with authority and compassion, as he literally probably, I like to think he interrupted the procession as he says, hey guys, that's awesome, but I'm better. I'm the fulfillment of what you're celebrating. So don't go there Come to me and drink. And look at how the people responded. We're almost done here. Look at, look at verse 40. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided. Because of him, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Look at the religious authorities and how they responded. Verse 45. Then the servants, I love this, came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? So in other words, the, the officers that were charged to arrest Jesus, they came back empty-handed. He, here's why. The servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You on from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee I really don't have time to, to get into the irony of the text, but I just think this whole passage is just filled with irony. Because we know, where's Jesus from? Bethlehem. Offspring of David. And then the Pharisees, they look at the crowd and you're like, yeah, we, we agree with Jesus. They don't know the law. Yeah, you don't know the law either because you don't recognize who Jesus is. And notice Nicodemus because he's going to pop up again. Nicodemus in chapter 3. He came to Jesus and says, and, and, you know, clearly we know there's something special about you. And what did Jesus say? Nicodemus, you do not know a thing. And Nicodemus, the Lord, is starting to stir in his heart. And he's now slowly but surely defending Jesus, even though he's nixed by his own. And what we really see is just a mixed response. Some professed, some believed, some were amazed, some were doubted, some hated him and yet no one could arrest him they could not touch him and what is clear is what the what the temple guard said there has never been a man like this 
We've never heard a man teach like this, a man who could interrupt the procession and say, come, come and drink. A man who's God's own provision for his people, a man that is the fulfillment of the very festival that they are celebrating. So, so let's wrap it up here and talk about application. John shows us three things about Jesus. Jesus knows God because he came from God. He was sent by God, and his very purpose of coming was to die. And what he offers, he is the water that our thirsty souls crave. Here's what I want to just just do just pause a little bit here are you thirsty i think in all of us if we really slow down and stop there's a craving there's a yearning there's a desire there's a, a restlessness Like, I think winter brings it up. Like, do you feel restless? You feel like you need to be doing something? You feel like you need to be accomplishing something? You feel like you need to gather more wealth or more meaning or more purpose? And what the Lord does is in this, he reveals to us there's a thirst. There's something that is not right. There's something that's not satisfied. And that's a gift from the Lord. Like you feeling uneasy, you feeling unhappy, unsatisfied, That's from the Lord. Because what he is telling you, he is saying there's something missing. But here's what we have a tendency to do. We have a tendency, let's go with this whole water theme and thirsty. And we're wandering in the desert. And you, you, you know what we're doing? As we're wandering in the desert, we see these mirages. We see these streams of living water. And we chase after it. We pursue it. And what these mirages can represent, we tell ourselves, if I can only do more, if I only can be more successful, if I can only be loved and accepted and gain the approval of others, If I can only accomplish this in life. And what we do is we chase after these mirages and then we jump into the water and then we wake up with sand in our mouths. Only to find ourselves unsatisfied, unfulfilled. And then we think the problem is with the craving. Let me tell you, the problem is not with the craving. The craving is a gift from the Lord. The problem is with the water that you're drinking. You're drinking sand. You're not drinking water. You're drinking something that will never satisfy you as you chase after these things. And what Jesus is doing is he's offering himself. He says, come. And drink from me. Come and believe in me. And you will be fully satisfied. You will be fulfilled. The thirst and the craving and the restlessness in your heart will be satisfied. And so some of you, you might be wondering, well, how does Jesus satisfy? Well, the first way he satisfies you is by dying for you so that you can be redeemed and reconciled with God. Because when sins, because of sin, we've been detached from God. We've been separated from God. And the only thing that results from being separate from God is death and destruction. There's no way back to be reconciled to God. There's only death. There's only destruction. And the very first thing he does in redeeming you is reconciling you, plugging you back into God so that there can be life. But not only does he reconcile you to God, he also reconciles you to one another. He gives you a new identity. He gives you a new purpose. He redefines what success looks like. He gives you clarity of thought. He gives you hope. He gives you peace. He gives you rest that as everybody else is chasing the mirages, you can look back and say, yeah, that's not real. But the invitation is to come 
and drink from this living water, not from this fake sand that would never fulfill. And so my invitation, John's invitation, Christ's invitation to you as he stands up, he says, this craving is from the Lord. Now come and drink. Now come and believe in me so that you can be fully fulfilled and fully satisfied. Let me pray for us, and I just want you to think about that for a moment. Just meditate on that. Think about the things that you're chasing after. Think about the craving in your heart. Think about the thirst and all the many things you try to fill it with. As you think about that craving, that restlessness, something is missing. I want you to know the invitation of coming to Jesus to believe in Jesus is for you. And it's not doing more. It's not being better. But rather, it's, it's almost a surrender. It's saying, I can't. I need Jesus. I need what he is offering. And, and really what it is is just a receiving. And you might not know what the future will look like, but you're trusting him in it that he will change you, he will transform you, he will make you new. He will fulfill your desires and even give you new desires. And then even for some of you, maybe you are with Christ, but you've not been drinking, you've not been believing in Christ. Take him up on this invitation to come and drink Believe in him. Quit chasing after the things that you know will not satisfy you. And as we get ready to sit at the table, basically the table is just a visual object lesson of what I just preached. It's an invitation for those who are in Christ to come and feast on him to come, to look to him, believe in him, and not forget all the benefits we have in him. And so if you're a Christian and you're weary and you're discouraged and you're overwhelmed, then come and sit at the table and be reminded of who Christ is and what he's done for you. Think about all the benefits that you have in him. If you're a non-believer and you this morning are surrendering your life to Christ, that means you were no longer, you were not part of the family, but now you are part of the family. Then come and sit at this table and think about who Christ is and what he's done for you as he lived the life you could not live and died in your place, reconciling you to God as he paid for all of your rebellion, all of your sin against a holy God. You were once an enemy of God, and now, because of Christ, he's made you a child of God. This is what we come, this is what we celebrate. But then if, if you don't want to believe in this, that's fine. Just don't participate at the table. This table is not for you. And as you feel left out, like this is a call, a clear invitation. Yeah, you're supposed to feel left out so that you can see the joy and the benefits we have in Christ. And hopefully that stirs in you a desire and a craving for wanting that. It's not because we're mean. It's because we love you and want to see you be in Christ. In a moment, we're going to distribute the elements. I'll pray for us. So what I want you to think about as we distribute these elements is just the benefits we have in Christ, the thirst that he satisfies, and who we are in Jesus Christ. Think about those desires that have not been fulfilled. Think about how Christ can fulfill those things. Let me pray for us, and then we'll distribute this. Lord, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you satisfy. Thank you that you fulfill. Thank you that you give us purpose and meaning, that you've reconciled us. 
Thank you that you've invited us to sit at your table and to feast on you as we are reminded of who you are and what you've done. And Lord, you know everybody. You know what they're thinking. You know what they're feeling. Can the truth that we have proclaimed, Lord, can that sit deep in our hearts? So it's not just another message we're hearing. It's not just another elements that we're eating and drinking, but in a sense it will become real as we remember we feel your presence. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's distribute these elements. I'm just so overwhelmed that throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this imagery of eating and drinking. He's the living bread. He's the living water. And there's something to say about hearing it. But then there's something else to say when you see it. And what we see here at this table this morning is this invitation to come and eat the bread which is his body that satisfies our hunger. This cup that is his blood. The covenant we have that satisfies our thirst. And the reason we get to sit at the table is not because we're awesome or special, but because we were weary, we were hungry, and we were thirsty. And Jesus called us, and he invited us in. And we came, and we ate, and we drank, and our lives have never been the same again so this is a reminder of this invitation and this calling of the work that he's done for us and so in your spiritual hunger this is the body of Christ eat it in remembrance of him and be satisfied by his body this cup that represents his blood, the new covenant we have. We drink it in remembrance of him and we are satisfied and will never be thirsty again. Can you just take some time right now and just thank the Lord for his invitation? Thank the Lord for that he offered himself for you. Thank the Lord that he fulfills and that he satisfies. And then thank the Lord for his people. That this table is not a individual thing. It is a communal thing because we eat together, we drink together as brothers and sisters in Christ. You are not alone, for you have Christ and his people. Lord, thank you for all of these precious things you've given us. Help us not to forget. Help us to cherish it. And in our journey and in our walk with you and with one another, Lord, help us to continually feast on you. Help us continue to believe in you. And even in the times where we stumble and the times where we falter and fall, may you pick us up as we look to you, trust in you, rest in you. For salvation comes from you. It belongs to you. It is by your grace in Christ through faith. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship our Lord and Savior.